can turn to Romans chapter 6. Merry Christmas. I know that fewer people in our world want to even say Merry Christmas, exchange it for Happy Holidays or something else. But I love to hear those words, Merry Christmas. I love to hear the tone of happiness and joy. For I believe that when we say Merry Christmas, it is more than just a wishful thought. More than a general well-being kind of prayer or statement. It really, when we say Merry Christmas, it is a statement that we believe that in the incarnation, God has solved the problem of evil in man. That's what we mean when we say Merry Christmas. That God himself has taken it upon, him, taken it upon himself to actually deal with the problem of evil. Merry Christmas is a shorthand way of saying to one another that God has actually acted to redeem. Hope and peace and joy have come to the earth in the one who is both God and man, our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now you might be having a wonderful Christmas season, or you might be having one of the most gut-wrenching seasons of your life. It doesn't matter. You should still love to hear the words. Merry Christmas. You see, Christ has come to ensure, that's that word surety again, he has come to ensure the final and complete happiness of all who belong to him. Now this sermon today is the third in a three-part series on the incarnation. In the first sermon, we looked at the goal of the incarnation. Now, what, did it, what is it that God was actually doing in uniting his son to fallen humanity? What was happening there? And we saw that Jesus took on our flesh for the purpose that you, a finite, limited, not always uh, able to comprehend things, so that you personally could know the God of the universe. That's why the incarnation occurred, because life is found in knowing God. And then last week, we looked at the details of the incarnation. He who was and is fully God has become what he was not, fully man. And in this union of God and man in one person, without altering the divinity without changing the humanity they're still fully human fully god that union of the two is the foundation of our redemption in the incarnation we truly have god with us 
Romans 5, which is the chapter prior to Romans 6, says this, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So you see that in the incarnation, in Christ taking on human flesh, and then through his life of obedience and his willingness to die on the cross, he has fully accomplished our righteousness. And a lot of times we think of just that he has imputed to us his righteousness, he's given us his record, but I think in this passage, by this one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Today's sermon is the application of the incarnation. You see, what Christ has accomplished in his birth and life and death and resurrection has to in some way be applied to us. As long as you remain separate from Christ, you cannot be saved. Your salvation is dependent upon you being united to Jesus Christ. So the same union that took place 2,000 years ago between God and human flesh also has to occur in each of our hearts. We must be brought into vital union with Jesus Christ. This is the hope of the gospel. This is Christ in you and you in Christ. So with that in mind, let us read Romans chapter 6. We'll read 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For, and you could say since, not just if, the the Greek will allow for both, for if or since we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. 
Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace." In verse 1, we find ourselves smack dab in the middle of an argument. Paul is defending the gospel. In the first five chapters, Paul has established two major points. All men have fallen short of God's standard of perfection. Secondly, God has provided his own righteousness for man. That's the two main points. You see, as a follower of Jesus Christ, we trust that our eternal salvation is based upon Christ's perfection and not our own. We confess, this is a part of the Christian confession, we confess that righteousness comes from God and is by faith. Now this deal is rather unbelievable. Jesus does all the work you get the reward. If you really let that sink in, it goes against all of our parenting principles of good behavior. Good character. I can imagine if you're caught cheating on a test and you say, but that person gave me the answers. Wouldn't go over very well, would it? We think cheating on a test is bad. Plagiarism is bad. If somebody else wrote the sermon today and I gave it today, wait a minute, there's something wrong about that. It's like stealing, right? It's a bad thing. Well, is it not true, even though that Jesus gives us his righteousness, that it's kind of like stealing it? You don't have to do any of the work, but you get the passing grade? Every good parent has to instruct to their kids the importance of doing the work. Put forth the effort so that you can have the good reward. How is it possible that the message of the gospel will not result in bad character? How is it that faith in Christ will not turn us into spoiled, lazy brats? And Paul anticipates this very question in Romans 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? If all of my salvation depends on the righteousness of Christ, and the more that I sin, it's just more that Jesus Christ forgives. Maybe I can, and I'm putting this in colloquial language, maybe I can remain a lazy bum and go to heaven. Maybe the gospel does encourage loose living. In some way, if you're even asking the question, that is an understanding that you actually get the gospel. Because Paul brings this up. If you get justification by faith alone, then why should I not go on sinning? There was a poet, I I don't really know this poet, but I like the comment. He said, I like committing crimes. God likes forgiving them. 
the, really the world is admirably, admirably arranged. But for Paul, Paul says, no, 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 no. If you believe the gospel, if you place your trust in Jesus Christ, it is not only recommended that you obey God and that you try to strive for holiness, it is an impossibility to not do so. You see, what he would argue is that if you place your trust in Jesus Christ, you are ensured that you will live a life of holiness. Now think about this again. If your teacher promised you an A at the beginning of the semester, what would it take to motivate you to still work your hardest to learn the subject? I mean, how is it possible... That, that as a Christian, if your salvation doesn't depend on your working, how is it that you will still work all the more to be holy? That's really the question that he's getting at. You see, because Paul believes, in verse 2, that we cannot continue to live a life of sin and believe in Jesus Christ. He asked the question, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And that is a difficult question to even know what he's asking at that moment. I mean, on a, on a physical level, it makes sense. The person who has died physically is no longer enticed by the things of this world, right? So if you've died physically, the, the temptations of this world will be on you. So the idea is that if a person dies to sin then he is no longer enticed to sin. No longer has a hold on him. In this uh, world of, you know, grade school, high school, community college, college, grad school, I mean, it seems like we're always taking tests, Right? And I talked to students enough, and I was a student, I still remember when I was a student back, that really, if you don't like the subject matter, you will do as little as you possibly can to pass the class. Is that not right? To a teacher, this kills you. Because as a teacher, you want your students to love the subject as much as you love the subject. You want them to, to say, hey, can I read that extra book on this just because I like to learn that material? That's what you want. But honestly, how often does this happen? But this is exactly what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that if you are united to Jesus Christ, it does not matter to you what the grade is. You will pursue holiness with every fiber of your being just for the sake of holiness, not to get the grade. Simply because holiness is good and beautiful and worth all of your efforts. That's what Paul is saying. 
Paul says that those who have died to sin, putting that into the illustration, those who have died to the to everything in your attitude that makes you not want to work hard in school to learn the subject, that is dead. You've died to that. How can you continue that attitude is his point. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, well, I do know about you because I, I, I don't specifically know about you, but I generally know about you because I know myself and I do enough counseling to know this. We are still struggling with sin. We don't love the subject of holiness like we should. I am constantly looking for the easy road to holiness. Let me take the shortcut. Let me just go down this easier path. And by the way, what does it matter anyway? Because he'll get me there to heaven in the end anyway. We kind of would like God to just carry us to heavenly bliss. But Paul assumes that everyone in the Roman church has died to sin. How can he assume that? Does Paul know their hearts? Does he know that each one of them has somehow fully severed all sin and all they desire is holiness? And by the way, I don't think that's the right answer, but if they had done that, why do they even need to be exhorted to not sin? Because if they have already completely died to sin, then it shouldn't be a problem. It'd be like saying when you get to heaven, will you be, need to be exhorted to follow God and love him in obedience? No, I always want to do that all the time. So Paul assumes that everyone in his church, in the church in Rome, he assumes that they are still struggling with very much being alive to sin. And yet he tells them, you have died to sin. Verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So he's taking this statement that you have died to sin, and he's, he's, the foundation of that statement is that they have been baptized into Christ Jesus. If you've been baptized into Jesus, then you have died to sin. That's a statement. And if you've been baptized into Christ Jesus, then you've been baptized into his death. And if you've been baptized into his death, then you can no longer continue in sin. It's like the teacher, when the students sign up for the class, the first day of class, he says, you didn't know this, but when you signed up for the class, something occurred. And now you will, kind of like waving the hand, you will love the subject with all your heart. You see, we are united to Jesus Christ by faith alone. There is no other thing that you can do to unite yourself to Jesus Christ. You are united him, to him when you trust in him and all that he is and all that he has done for you. And as you say, yes, Lord Jesus, save me. That is faith, and that is what unites you to Jesus Christ. Now, in this passage, Paul doesn't use the word faith in Christ here, and I think his reasons for that, because I'll, I'll explain that later, 
But he talks about being baptized into Christ. And there's a debate whether he's talking about physical baptism or whether he's talking about spiritual baptism. It doesn't matter. Baptism is the sign of your being united with Jesus Christ. And so he assumes that if you have been baptized into Christ Jesus, you have been united to Christ Jesus in his death. And I'm telling you right now that that union is a mystery. I believe whenever we take communion, that one of the reasons why God wants us to celebrate the sacrament of communion is because when you take the bread and Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, and you take it and you, you partake of it, you are actually in your actions acknowledging your faith that you need Christ, not just up in heaven, but you need him in your heart if there's ever going to be true cleansing of your heart. And as Dan often says, he's here somewhere, where's Dan? Raise your hand. There he is. As Dan often says, just because something is spiritual, just because it is a mystery, does not make it any less real. If you are in Christ, he is living in you. He has united himself to you. You are still in your old nature fallen and decrepit and sinful, but you are also united to the perfect humanity of Christ. You are one with him. So in salvation, a new sort of incarnation occurs. Christ was incarnated in the flesh 2,000 years ago, but he is also incarnating into each one of the people that he brings to himself. That's why scripture says things like Christ being formed in you. This union is something that the Holy Spirit does. You don't make it happen. You can't see it happen. It's just there. And it is only your union with Jesus Christ that can deal with the foulness of our sinfulness. You would have absolutely no ability to overcome sin if it were not for this union. Now, I'm not saying you can't overcome a particular sin. You know, you, but you'll overcome that particular sin. Maybe I've got a bad habit of not exercising, so I'm going to overcome that laziness and start exercising. But you usually do that for some benefit to yourself. But to actually crucify yourself, to no longer do things for yourself, but to live for another, to die to yourself, that is something that only... Union with Christ can occur, can make happen. Verses 4 and 5, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. In this passage, everything is about being in Christ, with Christ, in Christ, with Christ. That's everything. You haven't just died as some kind of decision that you made to kill yourself. You have been united to Jesus Christ and you have died with him. You see, this passage is not about personally 
having died to all of your sin. That's not what it's about. Paul is actually explaining to them the foundation by which you can put to death sin. We know, verse 6, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You see, what happened to Christ happens to you. Everything that Christ did becomes yours. Not just a record. He's actually carrying you with him through his death, through his resurrection. You have died when Christ died. In, a, in essence, trying to squeeze as much as I can out of this, this uh, classroom illustration... Sometimes you have a teacher who is so consumed with their subject that it like rubs off on you. It's contagious. Their love for the subject actually somehow gets into you and you begin loving the subject. Well, that is kind of an illustration of what Christ does. His love of holiness is now united to you and his love of holiness does rub off on you so that you begin to love holiness as Christ loved holiness. When Jesus went to the cross, did he have to crucify his own heart? It's a trick question. Kind of goes both ways. He did in the Garden of Gethsemane say, Not my will, but yours be done. Right? But the whole purpose of taking on humanity, fallen humanity, was for the purpose of, of crucifying that fallen humanity such that that fallen humanity could be finally killed and then resurrected again in newness of life. Jesus didn't die on the cross only to take the penalty for your sins. He died on the cross to crucify your sin because you did not have the power to crucify your sin by yourself. That which moves you to be selfish has been crucified in Christ's flesh. That which moves you to be more concerned with physical pleasure and comfort than the will of God was crucified in Christ. That which moves you to love yourself more than God crucified in Christ. That which moves you to be proud when you shouldn't be proud crucified with Christ. This union between you and Christ is everything. And it goes directly against our understanding of God's holiness. God is holy. He's separate from the world of evil. 
He lives in my heart? Does he know how wicked it is in there? Yeah, he does. He knows better than you know yourself. And that's why he has joined himself to you. This is why Paul says that he is not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel alone is the power of God for salvation. Overcoming sin is the fruit of the gospel, period. When you feel the darkness of your heart the most, can you even imagine Jesus Christ or God the Father wrapping you in his arms at that moment? Hard for me to imagine that. Sin separates you from God. Therefore, if I do any sin, I must be getting further and further away from God. He says, no, I have come to you in your fallenness to be the one to redeem you. This is why salvation is entirely a work of grace. It is something that you receive by faith alone. You don't conjure it up. And look at verse 11. Now we're starting, we've, we've looked at the application from God's perspective of him applying the, the incarnation to us by uniting us to Christ. But we also have to look at the implications of that union for us. You'll see it in verse 11. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This same word, consider, is the word for, uh, we use for justify, reckon you righteous, right? It's, you consider it to be true. The KJV says reckon, NIV says count. But here's Paul's point. Before you are actually able to put to death sin, before you actually personally experience death to sin yourself, you must consider it to have already been accomplished in Christ Jesus. You are to reckon it. You are to believe it to be true. And I'm telling you, you think this is easy? It is the most difficult thing in the world. There has never been more internal struggles in my heart than actually believing this to be true. You feel the power and the, the, the presence of your sin keenly. And your natural tendency is to believe what you sense, that this is what defines you. This is the most important thing about you, that you're still struggling internally with evil desires, of which you don't think you will ever be free. And the gospel tells you in the, in the very moment that you are feeling these wickedness within you. You are to believe that that wickedness is only a part of your old nature. You have been made new in Christ. You have died with Christ. You have resurrected with Christ. And that is what's most essentially true about you. And this is why I think that he uses baptism 
at the beginning because I think what Paul's saying is that he wants you to believe this not just at the beginning of your salvation, you have to believe it every day of your life. You have been united to Christ once and for all. That's what the text says. But the considering yourself dead is something that you must do every day of your life. And if you don't begin your process of sanctification, if that's not the first step in your process of sanctification, constantly saying, oh, I have to look to Christ first. I have to believe in this union with him. As John 15 says, I must abide in Christ If you don't see that first, and the first motion of your soul is, Lord Jesus, I believe you've united me to yourself, you will crucify my old nature. If you don't start there, then sanctification will become works righteousness. But having started with this faith, having started with believing the union of Christ, and as Dr. Kelly says, you don't want to to start clinging to a well that will dry up. The well of Jesus Christ will never dry up. You can continue to look to him and he will give you grace upon grace upon grace. Not just to keep living in sin, but to help you to overcome that sin. That's where the fountain is. But given that salvation is only through union with Christ by faith, look at verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. As Dr. Kelly said, I listened to his lecture again, one of my professors from RTS. You have a part to play. You are called to drive the nail into your sin. I don't like to hear that. Can't I just like go on vacation and have it happen? You mean I have to personally do something to nail that sin to the cross? That's what he says. You don't let sin reign in you. You fight the battle. And that is the struggle of the soul that we have. I am not as sanctified as I would like to be. There are some times I want to drive the nail, maybe not today. But my faith in Christ tells me That because Christ put to death all of my sin, that is my destiny. And so I have hope that as I continue to struggle with sin, I will again pick pick myself up off the ground and fight against sin every day of my life. Colossians 3, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You see, the pursuit of holiness is messy. Every day you should be studying the Bible, trying to figure out what it is God wants of you. 
not just studying the Ten Commandments, but all of Scripture, learning his heart. How is it that God reacts? What, is, what are his motivations and desires? And I want those to be mine. And you know what you do when you look at God's word? You go, oh my goodness, how far have I fallen? Verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Picture yourself as a soldier. You've been wounded in the battle, and you've gone into the infirmary, and finally you've gotten enough health that you can come back to duty, and you come back to duty and you say to your commanding officer, I am here, I am ready for duty. Our strength is pitiful. We think we can be this grandiose Christian, and yet we can barely do the right thing even in our own homes. And yet, every day you wake up and you say to Jesus, you are my king, you are my commander, I am yours, do with me what you will today. And you know what's fun about that? He just smiles. That attitude of presenting yourself to him is more precious than anything that you actually do throughout the day. Sometimes we would like God to give us our marching orders each day. He rarely does that. Instead, he, he wants you to focus on character qualities that he first exemplified in his son, Jesus Christ. Compassion, kindness, humility, patience, forgiveness thankfulness these qualities of holiness are like clothes that we put on if you're here today and you wake up every day and you don't live your life presenting yourself to God you've got to ask yourself what am I even doing And in closing, verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. Paul finishes the loop. You have been given redemption by grace. And that redemption by grace frees you from the dominion of sin. And even though you struggle today to put to death sin, all of your sin has been crucified in Christ. And so you will win the battle. I can't tell you how many times I've wanted to give up and it is only my confidence that Christ has taken hold of me that has kept me fighting. Do not expect conquering sin to be easy. Expect it to take far longer than you think. And when you think you've got this sin taken care of, 
either that one will come back later or you'll have a new one spring up, but it will be lifelong struggling against sin. But I'm telling you that sin will not win. And so today, as we think about the baby in a manger, oh, how sweet to just think about a baby in a manger. And get, Don't get me wrong. I have loved this past week holding my granddaughter as much as I possibly can. That is beautiful to think of that. But if you only get a baby in a manger and you miss the fact that that same baby is being formed in your heart, then you miss what Christmas is all about. Christ is being formed in you. This is the mystery of all mysteries. Paul calls it the mystery of godliness, and it is the hope that you have of not just being a little bit better, but the hope of glory. You will be shining as bright as Jesus Christ shines in glory because you are united to him. Amen.